The reading is Romans 8, verses 18 to 27. That's on page 1135 of the Pew Bible. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as if in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. We were saved. But hope that, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they have already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for impatiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Thank you, Spencer. Um, let me pray for us before we begin. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this beautiful morning, and I thank you so much for your word. And I just pray that this morning, as we take a look at our passage in Romans, you'd open our eyes to see more of this future glory that you have promised us, and to patiently wait for that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Our title today is Patiently Waiting, and so I wonder to start with what those words mean to you. Perhaps they conjure up images of waiting at the shops, or perhaps something more serious, waiting for exam results. Maybe some of us have been waiting for the summer, or the World Cup. Maybe some of us are patiently waiting even for Christmas. In preparation for this, I tried to look up how much of our lives we actually spend waiting, and it was hard to find a definite answer because, as you can imagine, our lives are so varied. I did discover, however, that the average person spends the equivalent of two weeks of their life waiting at traffic lights. So we spend a great deal of our lives waiting for things, and yet have we ever thought about what role waiting plays in our discipleship? I suspect most of us know that one day the Lord Jesus is going to return. But does that really impact how we live day to day? And do we ever really think about our Christian walk as waiting patiently for that day? I'm hoping as we take a look at our passage today, we'll have our hearts and minds changed to see that our discipleship really should be characterised by a patient but eager waiting for that day. So let's turn to our passage. The book of Romans could really be characterised as a book about that question of what did the cross achieve? And what is Calvary all about? And so before Romans 8, a little bit earlier on in the book, the Apostle Paul has explained how we are made right with God by Jesus' death. And 
Those who believe in Jesus are united to Jesus in his death. And so, though we are still sinners, God looks upon us as right, as just, as righteous. And so we come to chapter 8, and just before our passage at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul talks about how the result of our being made right with God is that we are adopted as God's children. And all that means is that because we have been united to Jesus, God the Father looks upon us in the same way that he looks upon Jesus. And so, you know, those words that the Father declares over Jesus at his baptism, he also declares over us. So we come to verse 17, and verse 17 is the verse just before our passage begins. And at verse 17, we have a new theme introduced. Verse 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So at the beginning of that verse, we have the previous theme of adoption. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We, we get the blessings that the Father pours upon Christ because we belong to him. But the result of this in the second half of the verse is that we must then also share in his sufferings if we want to one day share in his glory. We should perhaps be reminded of Jesus' words that a servant is not greater than his master. For, for Jesus, the order was suffering followed by glory. And so how can we, his followers, expect it to be any different for us? We can't expect to miss out the suffering bit and go straight to the glory bit. So we come to verse 18, the beginning of our reading. And we have in verse 18 that fantastically bold statement. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I think that statement requires a bit of unpacking for us to understand what Paul is on about. Firstly then, what are those present sufferings that Paul is talking about? And secondly, what is this glory that is to be revealed in us? Firstly then, what are the present sufferings that Paul is talking about? Well, on the face of it, it's obvious what those sufferings were for him, for the Apostle Paul. We read elsewhere in his letters of the great things he suffered throughout his ministry. Um, particularly in 2 Corinthians 11, he gives a great list of the things he suffered. And there we have things like he was shipwrecked three times. He spent a day and a night in the open sea. He suffered multiple beatings on multiple occasions. He suffered prison on multiple occasions, lack of food, lack of sleep. He suffered some sort of illness which he describes as a thorn in his side. So those are the sufferings for the Apostle Paul, but what then are the sufferings of the present time for us? Well, it bears mentioning that for many of our brothers and sisters across the world today, their sufferings are remarkably similar to those of the Apostle Paul. There was only something in the news yesterday about Christians fleeing from Iraq because ISIS have said, become a Muslim or we'll kill you. Um, and so it bears remembering that for our brothers and sisters across the world, that is the sort of suffering they're going through day by day. And yet for us, thankfully, we live in a country that has religious toleration. 
And yet still, that doesn't make us immune to suffering, does it? You don't need me to tell you that. We still suffer sickness. We still suffer the death of people we love. We still suffer from fatigue, from depression, from strife in our relationships with others. We still suffer under employers whom we don't get on with or in menial jobs that we don't enjoy. I'm sure you could add many more things to that list of things that we still suffer. And so when Paul talks about the sufferings of the present, he's not only talking about things like persecution. He's also talking about all the things that we suffer as a result of sin in the world. Illness and death and strife in our relationships with others. And yet it's remarkable, isn't it, that the Apostle Paul suffered a great deal more than most of us ever will. And yet he was still able to say, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So the question is then, what is this glory that will be revealed in us? Well, we read on in verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. This future glory then is the revealing of the sons of God. It's the return of Christ. It's that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's that day when all creation will see the Lord in all his glory and his great plan of salvation for his people will be plain for all to see. And yet, thankfully, we don't have to speculate on how this day is going to be greater than our present suffering because we're given a little more to chew on. We read on in the passage uh, from verse 20 about the future of the earth, the future of creation. For creation itself was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. It's quite plain to see, isn't it, looking around our world, that human beings don't live in perfect harmony with this world that God has put us in. We continually see natural disasters, plagues and famines in parts of the world. And we see human beings abusing this creation that we've been placed in. And yet what Paul is telling us in these verses is that this promised future for us is not only salvation for us, but it's a remaking of the whole world. It's a making new of whole, the whole of creation. We should perhaps be reminded of Jesus' words in Revelation 21, I'm making all things new. So heaven then isn't about disembodied spirits somewhere on a cloud. It's about a new creation, a new world. I think C.S. Lewis brilliantly captures the beauty of this new creation in the last of the Narnia books, The Last Battle. Um, I, I realise I've read from this in sermons before, but um, this is a different part and I, yeah, I just couldn't avoid doing it. So I just want to briefly read to you what Lewis says about the difference between the new Narnia and the old Narnia. What's happened in The Last Battle is at the end of the story, Aslan leads the children into a new Narnia. They've seen the old one destroyed. And to begin with, they don't realize that this new land is Narnia. Um, but as they walk into it, they begin to recognize parts of it. 
And yet somehow it's different and they can't puzzle out how it's different. It somehow looks more real. And so this is what Lewis says about it. It is hard, it's hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia, as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you'll get some idea if you think about it like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea, or a green valley that wound away among mountains. And in the wall of that room opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turned away from that window, you suddenly caught sight of the sea or the valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story. A story that you've never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. And I think the thing that that beautifully captures is that somehow this world that we live in right now, though it's beautiful, is just a shadow of what it will be when God makes all things new. And yet it's not only about a new creation, this, this hope that the Lord has given us, because we read on about the future of our own bodies. In verse 23 we read, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What is this redemption of our bodies? Well, just as creation will be made new, we will be given new bodies. Just as Jesus, after his resurrection, had a glorious new body, so will we. And we will have bodies that don't get ill, that don't decay, that don't get old, that don't get sick and die. And yet, great though this new creation seems to be, we still haven't seen yet what it is about heaven that makes heaven heavenly. Um, Because actually, I don't think it's going to be the beauty of the surroundings, though they are going to be amazing. And I don't think it's going to be the beauty of our new bodies, although that will be great too. The thing that's central is that the Lord is there. It wouldn't be heaven if the Lord wasn't there. We were made to know and delight in him. And so if he wasn't there, this wouldn't be heaven. I just want to pick up on a couple of verses from Revelation 21 that really capture that. Um, Verses 22 and 23 there read, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The point of those verses is right at the heart of this new creation, the Lord is there. We will see him face to face. And, you know, as those verses say, there's no need for a temple because we will see him as he is. We won't need any mediation. And so the point is, though creation, new creation will be brilliant, our, our gaze will be fixed on the beauty of the Lord. It won't be fixed on those wonderful surroundings. I hope we're beginning to see then that verse 18 really is true, that our present sufferings are really not worth comparing with this glory that will be revealed in us. So what do we do while we wait? What should our patient waiting look like? 
Well, we read further on in our passage that our waiting should be characterised by groaning. We read in verse 22 about how the whole creation is groaning for that day to come sooner. And so in 23, we read about our groaning. We read, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What's this groaning? This groaning is our longing for that day to come sooner. It's our waiting eagerly. And so the question for us then is, are we waiting eagerly for that day? Are we groaning? Is our walk with the Lord characterised by praying, come Lord Jesus? Because I think when things are going well in life, when the world has given us all that we want, you know, a comfortable job and a lovely family and no suffering, then it's very easy not to give very much thought to the Lord's return. It's very easy for us to live day to day as though we actually belong here. Um, and not as if we are exiles waiting to go home to the world that we were made for. On the other hand, looking back to that suffering we talked about in verse 18, I think it's when we are suffering that we groan most readily. When we suffer under illness or suffer the loss of somebody we, somebody we love, that's when we feel most strongly in our hearts that this isn't right. People shouldn't die. People shouldn't get ill. That's when we long most readily for a world made new, a world made right. And so I guess for us there are probably two, uh, two struggles in reading this passage. The first is we struggle to believe that verse 18 really is true. When we're going through suffering, it's very hard to believe that that future glory really won't compare to our present sufferings. On the other hand, as I just said, the second struggle is when everything's going well, do we live in light of the Lord's return? Do we live each day as though the Lord might return tomorrow? Because it's very easy not to. It's very easy to put off telling that person about the Lord Jesus when we think, well, there'll always be another day. I think if you struggle with either of those things, we have a final encouragement in this passage. And that is in the last two verses. Just read from verse 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The point is, in both those struggles, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit has a ministry of transforming our hearts and minds. And so, when you're suffering and you struggle to believe that that promise really is true, the Spirit helps you in your weakness. And equally, when everything is going well, and it's so easy not to live as though the Lord is going to come again, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Finally then, my final challenge to you, I think very often when we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, we can think that that means we don't have to actually do anything. It, we just sit and wait for God to come and do something. And I don't doubt that sometimes the Lord does do that, but he has given us ordinary means by which his Spirit works. And 
those are things like reading the Bible, being here in church and partaking in public worship, hearing God's word preached and partaking in communion as we're going to in a little while. And so it's by those things too that the Spirit works to open our eyes to see how glorious that day is going to be. And so if we neglect to use those things, then we're, we're ignoring something that God has given us. And so I want to challenge you in this coming week, if you've got time, read Revelation 21. It's a glorious picture of this new creation. And read it and pray that the Lord would work in you and stir up a longing for that day. Amen.